Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Those experiences of the dissolution of the self freed me from that voice where I no longer was like, you're not strong enough, you're not smart enough, etc. I was like, hey, that's just one voice. Once that voice fades and the neural activity associated with that voice is quieted, what emerges? And what emerges for, for me is the sense we talked about earlier of shared humanity, collective self. I'm part of life. That's a big idea that I'm not just yeah. a separate self. I am part of a big life force. And what a great gift of awe. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. We tend to believe that happiness is found when we accumulate money, success and status, but that's actually wide of the mark. According to one of the preeminent happiness scientists in the world, real joy is found by tapping into the transformative power of awe. Dacher Keltner is a best-selling author and psychology professor at the University of California. 20 years into teaching people about happiness, he's on a mission to reveal the secrets of the good life. He's found that experiencing a sense of awe leads people to cooperate, share resources and sacrifice for others 
while also becoming more modest and less narcissistic. In a nutshell, it's not about aggrandizing our sense of self or ego, it's about transcending it. But what is awe? What are its benefits? And how do we get more of it in our lives? You're about to find out. Before we get to it, I mentioned Big Beach Boutique 2 during this episode, which was a free party put on by Fatboy Slim on Brighton Beach back in 2002 as an example of an awe experience. 60,000 people were expected and a quarter of a million turned up. Now, I've linked to a TV advert about that party in the show notes, so do check that out if you want to know what I'm on about. But first, I've been a fan of Dacca's work for a long time, so I'm excited about this one. Enjoy. Dacca, how lovely to meet you. How are you? I'm doing really well, Simon. It's great to be with you. I've got a fantastic, lovely little synchronicity to share with you, if I may. Excellent. Probably a decade or so ago, I watched the film I Am. Yes. I enjoyed the message of it, which is basically about the importance of connection, the overemphasis on materialism, how we've kind of lost our way a little bit. Yeah. Probably two months ago, I was at home and my little girl and my wife were out. So for a very rare time, I had free use of the television. I was <laughs> scrolling through. Up popped I Am. I thought I'll watch that again. So I watched it. Yeah. Got to the end. I thought I've got to get that guy on. And that guy was you. Oh, thank you. And then a week later, I get an email saying, DACA is free and available. Now, I think that is a beautiful synchronicity. <laughs> and it's even got a touch of awe about it. Yes. And uh, it's so wonderful to be brought to you by that movie, because I think that movie was important in interesting ways. And the message of it links up with a lot of what you talk about as well in this book, yeah. which brings us neatly to your book on awe. And firstly, I've got to say congratulations. It's a fantastic read, fantastic book. Thank you. So in a nutshell, what is awe? You know, this is a hard question. Some things are easy to define. Fear is about facing peril that threatens your body. Uh, but it took a while, and I relied on an Irish philosopher, Edmund Burke, who thought that awe was about encountering powerful things that are obscure. And I translated that to say that awe is an emotion that you feel when you encounter things that are vast and mysterious, and that transcend how you understand the world. And I think that, you know, that accounts for the idea that awe is our reaction to vast mysteries. It accounts for probably 90% of our experiences of awe. And there are counterexamples that are interesting. Sometimes we encounter things that are really tiny or minuscule. You look into a cell and you are amazed by the structure of a cell in a, under a microscope. But uh, I, in general, awe is our, the feeling we have when we encounter vast mysteries. Vast mysteries, which is why science struggles to really define it, right? Because science doesn't deal in, in those kind of things. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it was it was really humbling to, you know, be a scientist for 35 years, to measure on all these different ways. And as I wrote this book, uh, I, I really, you know, it was one of the first times where I really felt that just by asking people to fill out questionnaires, measuring their physiology, measuring their facial expression, I really didn't get the essence of awe, the, the heart of it, the soul of awe. And that led me to interview people and to gather stories and to think about my own life, have audience members think about their own experiences of awe. So I think we need to go beyond science to, in some sense, the humanity, you know, what music can teach us, what uh, art, what poetry. So I did my best to kind of broaden out to other disciplines. And there are some things that 
can't be quantified and measured and and that's the thing but that we are in a in a time where um the obsession with you know if you can't measure it it doesn't exist is very real and very prominent yeah and you know i mean simon i've spent my career measuring emotions and they're a very tricky domain to measure and a lot of people feel like you can't do it and i feel like we can uh and we are in this era of big data and quantification and the idea and i love measurement you know the idea that you can almost measure anything but it's interesting you know simon when people feel awe they will say things like i really started to understand my soul or i know what's sacred in life and good luck measuring those things <laughs> so yeah you know in some sense the book is is uh a my acknowledgement that and i stated explicitly like wow all the measures i have so much faith in they they need more they need uh, the power of narrative in some sense just the storytelling that humans engage in to say the stories transcend history they transcend time they get into metaphorical reaches of what what you mean so um in many ways you know like yumi kendall who's a cellist that i interviewed when I asked her, like, how in the world, like, what is the awe of music? And she said, you know, after her rational analysis, she said, you know, it's like a cashmere blanket of sound. And the minute, <laughs> the minute I heard that phrase, I was like, that's it. Music just makes you feel like you're wrapped up in soft meaning. Now, how you would ever measure that, I don't know, but the metaphor gets us close. And that's the thing, isn't it? Measurement by definition, and correct me if I'm wrong, is objective. It's other. Yeah. But or is subjective. Yes. It's what we feel and experience in the first person. And it's that big, there's a big difference between first person and third person science. Yeah. You know, thank you for bringing this up, Simon. No one's mentioned that. And it's a profound observation, which is, I, you know, I first learned about this uh, hanging around the Tibetan Buddhists who are in and the, the movement to study the mental states of meditation. And scientists come in with all their fancy measures and statistics and, and the contemplative people say, you know, it has to be first person. It has to be from the subjective point of view. And I think awe being this complicated emotion or mental state is the same. Like you read a poem of, of you know, Wordsworth or Blake or Whitman or passages by Virginia Woolf or listen to music. And, and that gets you closer to the meaning of awe than this outside measurement, or or it's complementary. You start the book with a very powerful anecdote about the passing of your brother, Rolf. Firstly, I've got to say, obviously, very sorry for your loss. It was very moving to read that. You were present as he died. You were left grieving for so long afterwards, and I'm sure still are. But at the same time, within this, there was this sense of awe as well that actually in many ways catapulted the book to to what it is now. Yeah, you know, Simon, thanks for asking that. And uh, it always makes me humble to think about that moment. Um, yeah, my brother Rolf, he and I are very close and did so much of life together. He was one year younger. In many ways, my moral compass in life. And he got colon cancer, two years of just brutal combat uh, with that disease. And then January 26, he takes a cocktail to pass away. And I go up there and, you know, I, I didn't have a, I don't have a religious background. Uh, I probably was somebody who feared dying as a kid. So I didn't like to think about it, uh, but I knew it was coming. And I started to read up on how to approach it, to be open to it. And in that moment, 
sitting by his bedside and saying things to him and seeing his breathing respond to me and seeing his face so warm and flush and, and full of love um, when it had been brutalized by cancer. And then having the distinct sense that he was leaning into a space that I actually literally saw pulsate, um, you know, behind and around him. Um, and then the effect that it had on all of us around him, it was an, an, a moment of awe. And it did, it, it opened my mind. Um, and then I had uh, four months of almost psychotic grief. Grief can be psychotic almost, hallucinations, hearing voices. I felt this hand on my back, you know, and it cat as your word is right, it catapulted me into this book. I was like, what happened? What does he mean? What is his life? What is my psyche without him physically around? Why do I still feel him with me, you know, often? Um, and I had to write the book. And so I went off on my own. I had a bunch of books that mean a lot to me, like Lao Tzu and Walt Whitman and others. And I just started to write about awe and death and my brother and meaning and what life's about. And it started, it merged into the book. Has it been quite cathartic? You know, I, uh, not only has it, it's been cathartic in the best sense, you know, the word thing, uh, I think ancient Greek means insight. And, and it taught me that my brother in some sense, psychologically is always with me. It opened my mind to ideas of what is the human soul? You know, what, what is around? What, what stays with us? Where, how do we experience people who have died physically? It led me, I, I mean, I just, you know, like a lot of people grieving, like you just have to go towards sources of meaning to you, you know, like he and I hiked in the mountains a lot. So I went to a lot of mountains. Um, he and I, you know, I went to talk to ministers about things and, you know, got into prisons to sort of just find, find what's meaningful to me. So that was incredible. Um, and I tell you, Simon, you like daily, I'm getting letters from people and emails. Like I saw my brother die. It was the same sort of thing. I saw my child die and it changed my life, you know, and, and it's a opening for our culture to think about how can we start to sort of build upon the transformative power of grief. Yeah. Uh, it's funny you say that, actually, because uh, I was speaking about it with a friend of mine, and I haven't been in that situation, but a friend of mine's sister was with my friend's mother when she passed away and said very similar things to what you did. It was a transcendent moment. It was a grief-stricken moment, but it also changed the trajectory of her life. Just that experience in many ways. It seems to be common, actually, people who are in that experience. It is, and... And we've lost sight of that in the West. You know, a lot of other cultures know that with their rituals and their, you know, the Day of the Dead ceremonies in Mexico lasts for four years, right? They always return to the ashes where they bury the, burn the body and meditate on the person. The Japanese have days where ancestors in their, their sense of the world come visit them, right, who have passed away and they honor the ancestors. So it is about this, you know, as I, I end that chapter on Walt Whitman's quote of like, Life goes onward and outward, even when it passes. And it taught me that, you know, that is, is something that has a deeper um, application, a lot of life that we're transforming and changing and growing uh, in different contexts. 
Well, you clearly had a beautiful relationship with Rolf, and I think it's a, yeah. a, a lovely tribute to him, the book. Thank you. What came across to me throughout this book was a fundamental aspect of awe that I think can perhaps be easy to overlook. And that is what I would say, the quietening of what you call the default self. Yeah. The interfering neurotic, as Aldous Huxley calls it. Yeah. How would you describe what the default self is to the uninitiated? Yeah, you know, we we have this voice in our mind. We have a voice of the self, the default self. And I approach it from an evolutionary perspective that says, you know, to survive, you got to take care of self-interest and, and advance in the world. And that's the default self. It is telling you about your goals. It's reminding you of your aspirations. It's keeping an eye on what your social status is, you know. It is helping you navigate through space. It's getting you food into your body, just taking care of self-interest. And, you know, for a lot of different reasons in our culture, uh, we have become obsessed with the self. You know, it is, sociologists tell us, one of the most selfish times in human history where we're thinking about the self, we're criticizing the self, we're wanting to acquire things for the self, we're wondering about our status. And here is an emotion, awe, that comes in and just quiets that interfering neurotic voice right down. Uh, and thank goodness, <laughs> you know, because today people feel so self-aware and self-conscious and they're wondering how many likes they're getting on Instagram. They're feeling critical of themselves. A lot of people do. That's all the default self, making sure you do good work in the world, but we need to balance it out a bit. So fair to say then it's, those sort of self-referential thoughts, me, mine. Yeah. And would you say it's fair to say that most people think that that default self is who they are? Yeah, I think, I think that's a fascinating question. You know, I think, you know, when, when you look at people like William James and the science of the self, and uh, there are many different realms of the self from, you know, my physical self, my sense of collective identity as part of the self. And, and what I would say is that um, with the rise of individualism, which is a dominant view of human beings that's emerged with globalization and Western European culture, we tend to think of this, this default self as like, I'm defined by my unique preferences and traits. I'm separate from other people. I'm competitive and seeking advantage over others by nature. And that's just one slice of who we can be. And probably people are hungry for other qualities of the self. A lot of young people today, the Gen Xers and millennials, really want to return to more collective senses of the self, right? I'm part of a political movement. I live in a collective house. I, I'm part of this culture. Um, and uh, it's an interesting moment with respect to our culture and, and who we want to be, who we want ourselves to be. Yeah. I like that you use the word separate separation is a fundamental part of that default self yeah whereas or there's an underlying theme of connection yeah i you know i actually think that the sense of shared identity shared mind you know you you go listen to a powerful piece of music and and the data show that that powerful piece of music puts people into a shared sense of reality right or a shared mind uh, and, and a core layer to awe is this sense that 
I share feelings and thoughts and representations and ways of being with people who matter to me, right? And so powerful is that layer to awe. Like you can go experience awe, you know, go look at a, a remarkable forest by yourself and you walk out of that experience feeling like you have shared humanity with others. So I think it's um, something that people really yearn for right now. There are epidemics of loneliness in many different countries and awe kind of counters that and says, you know what, in this moment, in this experience, uh, you and a lot of other people are, are understanding the world in a similar way, which is very uplifting. Yeah. A lot of people say, actually, so many of our drives towards happiness and satisfaction are to get rid of that sense of separation. Anyway, I want to come, I want to come back to the default self. Okay. But I want to talk a little bit about, obviously, the ways to quieten down that pesky default self, but quickly <laughs> as well. An interesting thing to consider is, okay, where isn't all found? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, this fascinating bit that, that came across to me around in this age of rising inequality, if you've got a lot of money and a lot of stuff, you're actually less likely to experience awe. I mean, thank you for calling attention to that. That's one finding. I trust the finding. It's a nationally representative sample from people in the United States. So it covers a lot of the diversity of the United States and, and Europe and other cultures. And the finding is, you know, the more wealth you have, the less awe you feel on a regular basis. And I think that there are a couple of really interesting possibilities here. One is stuff gets in the way that, you know, with wealth, you think more about buying, you think more about things, and that mindset gets in the way. I think there's something deep about transactionalism there that, you know, with wealth, you tend to see the world in terms of transactions, right? Oh, I'll give you this and you pay me that, or, you know, we'll trade resources. And that gets in the way. And a lot of people have written about that, that awe is independent of the mundane world of transactions. Um, you know, the, the, the critical... Social scientists would say, well, with wealth, you probably become less religious, less spiritual, and that may play a role here. And so, you know, I think that's one of the deeper findings for us to ponder, which is, you know, as we strive for wealth and we want meaning to come out of wealth, um, maybe the very striving for wealth undermines that effort. And that's a finding that says we should watch out. Bit of a controversial one for you here, Dakar. All right. The American dream, is it not tied up yeah. to some degree with success and materialism? So the American dream, doesn't it clash with seeing and finding awe? Yeah, you know, it does. The, you know, the American dream of, you know, right, you know, getting your bank account to be as big a number as possible, buying a home, you know, typically where you're isolated from other people where you have to drive a long commute in the United States that averages 50 minutes each way, um, where your kids are spending a lot of time alone, and then you're in the competitive you know, uh, right, striving that, that so defines those efforts. I think all of those work against these emotions that are so important to us of awe and compassion. And it's why, you know, it's interesting, this new generation, you know, my generation really sought the American dream, and, and it's in question whether that was a good thing to do. The new generation is, is really departing from the American dream. They don't buy houses like we buy houses. They don't buy cars like we buy cars. They don't get married like we get married. 
And so it's an interesting moment where awe may prevail <laughs> uh, because it's squelched by the dream. It is interesting. Yeah. It seems like only a few years ago where hustle culture was really celebrated. And then I, I was reading an article just the other day where, and I think it was like, screw hustling. I want to sit outside and look at the stars at night. And I was like, yeah. it's moving fast. I know. I mean, I, I work with these this young generation and they have a different idea of work. They think like 60 hours a week is absurd. I want to experience things. And I'm like, but you got to work. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, no, I think it's a, I, I think, I hope that some futurist or some, you know, historian or sociologist will say this will be the culture of all, that they will be they're returning to nature in new ways. They're interested in festivals. They love communal oh, yeah. activity and games and the like. That's all awe, right? So good for them. I wish I'd have been born a little bit later. <laughs> You've got that free spirit in you. It shines through for sure. I do. You know, and, and I mean, the, the generation you grew up in, in the sort of 70s, that had a touch of that, didn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> 80s and 90s, not so much. Tough. Although the rave culture yeah. still had it. In fact, why don't we start with that in terms of your eight ways to see or let's start with those sort of collective moments then. Those moments when you're, let's say, at a festival or <laughs> I went to something called Big Beach Boutique was with the last free big rave in England because they expected 60,000 people on Brighton Beach and a quarter of a million turned up. It was really special because quarter of a million people, right? It could have been an utter disaster. It could have really, with that volume of people, it could have got really messy, but it didn't because everyone was there and was on the same wavelength, wow. was bouncing up and down together. And, you know, there's something quite beautiful about that. So that sort of collective sharing is, is that fits in your eight wonders of life? Oh, it's, it's fundamental. And what a great place to start, Simon. You know, uh, Emile Durkheim, the sociologist from France, called it collective effervescence. You know, like, you get into these moments where you're you're just sharing an experience at a, a collective event and you're moving together, feeling together. You're watching, you know, the the British, the English football squad, or you're listening to music together. You're at a political rally and your fists are going up in the air and you're shouting, right, protesting a war or what have you. And the next thing you know, you've got goosebumps, you're tearing up, everybody feels like your brother or sister you're ready to sacrifice for anything. And that is all, you know, uh, very powerfully delivered in collective moments. And what really strikes me about that experience um, is, is how transformative it is. And, you know, we talked about this transformative quality to awe, like some of the first person narrative studies of these collective effervescent moments, people come out of it, like, just like you, like, I want to save a memory of this forever. I want to, this moment changed how I think about my place in the world. Uh, it taught me what I really care about, you know? Um, there are new studies coming out of festivals, music festivals, psychedelic festivals, where uh, you become more altruistic for a year, right? So these collective experiences are really powerful and become almost spiritual. You know, you almost feel like, sure. yeah, this is what, what life's about right here. Um, so great, great place to start, Simon. Indeed, yeah. Future drops away, past drops away. <laughs> and you mentioned political rallies. Yeah. The one thing I'd say, though, about, let's say, festivals or music or the Big Beach Boutique, like I said, there's no other yeah. in those experiences. Whereas, you know, you go to a rally, there is an other. Anytime you get rid of the other, that's true or Definitely. 
That's cool. I wish I'd thought about that. That's a great insight. And, and, you know, what it tells us, and it reminds us that these collective experiences can get dangerous and dark, right? Um, I remember, you know, reading about the massacre in Rwanda, you know, the Hutus killing the Tutsis, and there was a lot of collective effervescence. They were chanting and dancing and brandishing their machetes and, you know, moving through the neighborhoods. And so, uh, I like your observation. It's a, actually a testable hypothesis <laughs> that once you, you don't have the other, the collective effervescence becomes even more blissful. And, and I believe you. Right. Moving on to moral beauty, because just seeing acts of real character, of moral fortitude, how that can inspire awe. So first of all, can you talk a little bit to this? And also, what does it suggest then about our true nature? Yeah. You know, Simon, you're, you know, you're pointing out some of the real surprises in this research, you know, the wealth finding we talked about. You know, I think most people would say, oh, awe is about nature, maybe meditation, music. And we gathered awe stories, those first-person accounts of awe, uh, as we've nicely discussed, from 26 countries. And the most common source of awe in countries as diverse as India and China and Mexico and the UK and is moral beauty, you know, the, the kindness people show on a regular basis, the courage, the wisdom, the selflessness. Um, and I was astonished by that finding. I was like, God, you know, the transcendent emotion of awe is actually found just opening your eyes to how good people are around you, you know? Um, and, and what it tells, I think what it tells us, and, and this will be for a lot of future science is that one of the ways in which we build healthy, kind strong moral communities is just opening up to the inspiration we find in other people right um and you know i when i was speaking in london about the book this guy like started talking he's teared up and he's like you know i just was coming on the tube and i saw this guy give some money to a stranger and they met and they made eye contact and i just felt awestruck and when he told the story we in the audience were all kind of tearing up so what a powerful layer to human community is this moral beauty. I'm really glad you shared that anecdote, actually, because it can be easy, I think, to think of when you were speaking initially, I actually had Nelson Mandela in my mind. There's a statue of him in, in Waterloo. And obviously that is, you know, moral beauty to the nth degree. But actually to bring it down to the everyday level, just to sort of random acts of kindness and, and like looking someone in the eye and those those little moments of connection, actually how profound they can be. So this is this is totally accessible to anyone. Mm, you know, thank you for that observation. When I remember writing this and, you know, I was one of the things that my brother Rolf was gifted at was he, you know, he worked with children, really poor children who had speech problems. So he's working with kids who are really struggling with this fundamental thing. And he just saw the moral beauty in those kids and in everybody. He just had this capacity for seeing moral beauty. And as he, he passed away, he left, it was almost like a gift to me where to keep his, his consciousness alive in my, my life, I, I just started to see the moral beauty everywhere around me. I'm more of a cynical, competitive guy, regrettably. And, and, and that stayed with me and just like, I don't believe that. I know. Well, I work hard at it, but you know, I was just like watching like little kids play and how funny they are. And 
oh, there's a young woman who just gave 30 bucks to the unhoused guy and two friends, you know, arm in arm walking into a pizza parlor. I was like, man, there is a lot of moral beauty around that I got to keep an eye on. So I love your analysis, Simon, of, of just how, how prevalent it is. Yeah. The best place to go to see this kind of thing is is in arrivals in an airport. When people are coming in and you see the hugs and stuff, I get a lump in my throat every time. Ah, it is awesome. Yeah, and I love, you know, Soren Kierkegaard talked about just when you go into public spaces, there's a lot of this taking place that, that we should be aware of. You know, just children's playgrounds, airport uh, reception areas, sporting events are full of moral beauty. It isn't just Mother Teresa and Nelson Mandela. It's, it, there's a lot of it to take in. Just quickly, because I obviously, I talk about sport a lot. Steve Kerr, what a quote about what sport's actually about. I think as far as a definition of, of professional sport goes, he nailed it. Can you just share that? Oh my God. You know, <laughs> one of the joys of this book and doing this research, Simon, I'm a huge sports fan, but it's I'm always a little embarrassed to talk about, you know, sports around my colleagues and so forth. And, uh, you know, and in our stories of awe from around the world, people talk about sports. You know, they talk about, you know, watching your football team win the World Cup or or a championship tennis match or, you know, a swimmer from China breaking the world record or Usain Bolt, you know, the world's fast. It is awesome. And so I was like, wow, I get to write about sports. And I did my scholarship stuff. I, you know, I, uh, you know, I talked about the Olympia, Olympic Games and the the ball court games of Mesoamerica and, but I love basketball and I grew up um, near UCLA who had this great basketball team of John Wood and, and I know the Warriors coaches a little, the Golden State Warriors, this American basketball team and Steve Kerr. And I, you know, hung out with him a bit and I'm like, I'm going to call Steve Kerr and ask him to talk about awe and basketball. And at the time, the Golden State Warriors uh, were scoring points in unprecedented fashion, statistically. They had these runs and they had a name for them where, you know, like th people just never seen offensive output like this, which was interesting for me. So I was like, I gotta find out what's the key here. So I call Steve, we talk for an hour. And I was like, Steve, like, tell me the key to basketball. Like what, what's going on with the Warriors? You guys have won these world championships, et cetera. He's like, you know, he started talking about his grandparents and how they built this orphanage for uh, Armenians during the genocide. And whenever he goes in world settings, Armenians come to him to talk about not only basketball, but what his family had done for them. And I was like, well, how do you know your team is really playing this kind of awesome basketball? And he said, I look around and I see if the fans are dancing. Because I, I was thinking he was going to pull out some statistic or play, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, wow. And then he said, it is a civic duty for people in sports to bring people joy. You know, joy being a relative of all of like, I'm free of life's burdens for a couple of hours. And I was like, isn't that incredible that you can go play, play a game and you can give hundreds of thousands of people two hours of joy. Um, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And you know, if all of our work did that, yeah. if this podcast did that, brought people joy, that's good work. And and uh, what a thank you for bringing it up. It was one of the real privileges to talk to Steve Kerr uh, about his life in basketball. 
Yeah. He's an amazing human being. Yeah, he is an amazing human being, isn't he? Yeah, he oozes moral beauty. Yeah. I think too many people say, oh, sport. It's about trophies. It's about winning. And listen, obviously, Steve knows all about winning better than anyone else. But I think to frame it in terms of winning isn't the only thing. In fact, it's not even the most important thing. It's the giving of joy. And that's why I'm such a Roger Federer fan. He's been my go-to all guy for nearly 20 years. Is that right? Yeah, I've covered Wimbledon for... uh, since 2006. And tell me how Roger Federer brings awe to the world. It's a balletic beauty of his game. Certainly, um, Novak Djokovic, for example, is, is more, statistically, more statistically successful. But I would argue that no one has been able to be so creative, do things that have never been seen before. And he's taken my breath away time and time again. So that's awe for me right there. It is. And, and this is what's beautiful about awe as an emotion for us to pursue is we can find it from Beethoven to Roger Federer to the prisoners I interviewed in San Quentin prison who are finding awe in light coming off the bay. I mean, it's just all around us. Uh, and, and, um, and sports is one of the great realms of awe. So let's bring it back down to to the earth and speak about nature. Nature is almost the most obvious one, I think, in terms of finding your, whether it be seeing the millions of stars on a really clear night, not that you ever do in this country, but (laughs) many of us will have had that experience. But even just being near parks and that kind of thing. Now, we've got a park really near us. It's my wife and I's spiritual home. It's called Nonsuch Park. So called because Henry VIII said there is none such park as beautiful as this. And I think he was bang on. But just <laughs> nature and the power of nature to evoke awe. Again, from the loftiest of nature experiences down to more every day. Yeah, you know, terrific analysis, Simon. And, and you, you know, if you ask people what brings you awe, um, a lot of people will mention the big sources of nature, right? Oh, the redwood trees in California, the Grand Canyon, the, you know, the, the incredible lakes of the Lake District or, or what have you. But, what, but the, the more interesting truth to where we find awe in nature is, is a couplefold. And, and one is it's, it's in every form of nature. It is in gardening. You know, they're great gardening t- traditions. It is in the walking paths of England. It is um, in fishing. You know, it is in si- sitting near water. And then the, the science gets profoundly interesting, uh, which is it's not just the big, you know, concept conceptual epiphanies of nature. Like, God, I didn't know a tree could live 1,500 years or be 300 feet tall or fungal networks communicate through these chemicals with tree roots which is all true, and that's astounding, but it is that our bodies are like antennas, and, and we find awe through studies show listening to a river, and the sounds of the river activate the physiology of awe. Certain scents that you know trees give off and flowers give off land in our, our nose, and, we, and that scent, like you smell a cedar in the Sierras where I backpack, you feel awe, right? Certain color patterns, certain moments of spring. And so that's, I think, what's really striking about it is that nature not only comes into awe through concepts like, well, that's a big tree, but also through scent and tactile contact and forest bathing and the sounds of water, you know, I mean, listening to an ocean. So 
uh, it suddenly starts to give you the sense that, wow, the boundary boundaries between me as a human being and nature are pretty thin, pretty porous. And suddenly, you know, you smell a rosemary bush, which I do a lot of in Berkeley. I'm always brushing my hand on it and smelling it. And it's like, wow, that is awesome. So it's much more than we might imagine uh, once we really start to explore it. Yeah. So get into nature is the most obvious or prescription that anyone can have. Yeah. Or get nature to come to you and get some plants and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, I just want to squish two together. So mystical encounters and big ideas. I'm going to squish them together. (laughs) So I know that you've had various psychedelic experiences. Yeah. And um, I think the quote is, it's the most reliable way of experiencing awe. Yeah. And I'm going to nod to your friend, Michael Pollan, who I had the uh, privilege and pleasure to speak to as well. And he was a somewhat of a latecomer to psychedelics, but he very um, descriptively uh, recounted his experience of, of one particular transcendent psychedelic experience where his ego, his default self, exploded into a, a shower of blue post-it notes and turned into a puddle <laughs> on the floor. And, and as he said, you know, <laughs> as he said, what what was uh, on the one hand a catastrophe and certainly could be experienced as a catastrophe. Uh, according to sort of the way so many people think of themselves. Actually, he experienced it with utter equanimity because (laughs) he recognized himself as the awareness, the consciousness behind the default self, right? Yeah. That's a a touch of Sartori right there. But also I think that that leans into the big ideas epiphanies. And I don't think you can get a bigger epiphany really than the old Ramana Maharshi question, who am I? You know, which is we're not who we think we are, We're not the ego. We're not the default self. We are that which is aware of it. We are not the voice in our head. We are that which hears it. So have you been through ego death and how was it for you? And in terms of epiphanies, do you think there are are any more important than recognizing that the default self is not who we are? Because when I spoke to Michael, he said that recognition was, you know, so profound and transformative for him. Yeah, I... um... What a terrific entrance. And I love that scene from Michael Pollan's book of, of just the self just exploding into these post-it notes, which is what the default self feels like is these dang post-it notes telling you what to do and to stay on task, right? Um, I have had um, experiences of ego death or dissolution on psychedelics and also meditation and in other realms of awe. One in particular um, in psychedelics was really interesting if you don't mind my going on about this was, and I was with my brother and we went to go see Iggy Pop, who's a source of awe for me. And we were in this mosh pit, <laughs> which is not the right place to be when you're on psychedelics. And it was Halloween, which in San Francisco, so it was very strange. And the whole world just kind of dissolved. And I had to step outside because it was a little terrifying because we our minds like certainties and stable representations of the world. And my brother kind of pulled me through and, and, and then it was liberating, Simon, just like you're saying, like, oh, that one sense of reality is just one sense of, of reality. And we know there are many, you know, multiple realities. I have a very critical um, voice in my mind. I'm very self-critical and anxious uh, as a kid and temperamentally and genetically. That, those experiences of the dissolution of the self freed me from that voice where I no longer was like, you're not strong enough, you're not smart enough, et cetera. It's like, hey, that's just one voice. And then the deeper thing that I think that the psychedelic science and awe science will get to 
is, as you nicely say, once that voice fades and the neural activity associated with that voice is quieted, what emerges? And what emerges for, for me in awe and in psychedelic experiences is the sense we talked about earlier of shared humanity, collective self. I'm part of humanity. I'm part of mammalian form. I'm part of life, right? Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Panpsychism in the psychedelic world. Like we're all alive, by, animated by evolution or DNA or whatever it is. And, and that, you know, you look at the religious traditions and you're right to smush spirituality and big ideas together, that's a big idea, that I'm not just yeah. a separate self, I am part of uh, a big life force. And uh, what, a, what a great gift of awe and psychedelics to give you. Yeah, and you've got a fantastic quote, probably my favorite quote in the book, Margaret Fuller, I'm just going to read it. I saw there was no self, that selfishness was all folly and the result of circumstance. And it was only because I thought the self real that I suffered, that I only had to live in the idea of all and all was mine, which I thought was a, a lovely quote. Yeah, you mentioned panpsychism there. I'm not a panpsychism guy. I'm more of a kind of non-duality <laughs> guy. Okay, which is to me, it's it's like what's underneath it, what's underneath it all. Yeah, it's just the ground of being consciousness itself. I mean, I don't know if you have a take on that. You know, I know Michael Pollan's moved from a 90% materialist down to sort of 60%, and I reckon he'll go uh, over the, over the other scale soon enough. Oh, yeah. Uh, once he's done his research into consciousness. But, you know, the idea that consciousness itself, not human consciousness, not animal yeah. consciousness, but just consciousness that is the ground of being and that in awe and mystical experience, yeah. all those type of things, we tap into that. And that's what we always want. That is that's where joy and happiness and peace is to be found. What about that? Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I You know, if I wrote a different book, I called it, you know, with a nod towards materialism, like, there are all these systems of life around us. You know, everything is a system, uh, sound, music, ecosystems, flowers, burritos, social systems, your group, your family, and all opens your mind to those things. And you're like, wow, I'm part of all these amazing systems. But maybe the superordinate hypothesis is yours, Simon, which is these systems are all animated by life and consciousness. And in awe, I suddenly realized like, wow, this is the consciousness of, of my family or this political movement or a piece of music, the soul, if we were in the 19th century, and I'm part of that. And, and that's what awe feels like. Um, and, and maybe I'll try to get after your hypothesis in the next round of research on the transcendent states. I like that you use the word life because a lot of people use being or self with a capital S or consciousness or awareness or whatever. But actually, I like to use the yeah. word life because people think that they're the voice in their head. They're the story of who they are. They're their history, which ultimately is just a bundle of thoughts and accompanying yeah. feelings. But why are you more the voice in your head than the life force that keeps your heart beating? The life that animates you is always present. The thought about yourself, you know, that critical voice comes and goes. So, you know, anything that comes and goes can't be who you are fundamentally, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I actually thought a lot about that and got that from one of the heroes of the book, Dr. Yuria Salidwin, who's this indigenous activist, works at the UN, studies indigenous spiritual traditions. And it's so interesting, Simon, you know, with like our conversation here, when we talk about awe, suddenly people are using words like um, soul um, and spirit. And her view coming out of the rich indigenous traditions that she studies is the best way to think about spirit is the 
animating force of life. And it's in everything. You know, that's what existence is. And somehow awe makes you feel that. And when I, when she defines spirit in that way, I suddenly could make sense of a finding like a lot of Western Europeans find spirit in nature. You know, when I go backpacking with my daughter and I look at the moonlight on a lake, I'm like, this is spirit. And, and with this indigenous framing from Dr. Salidwin, it's like, oh, that's, it's about the recognition of, of life. Yeah. Just to bring it back to awe specifically, there was another line that my radar went off on and it was like, in awe, we remain faintly aware of our default self. So I just was wondering how you came to that sort of conclusion that it doesn't completely go. I came to that conclusion that awe is always in some sense grounded in this this experience of myself in relation to larger things than the self or what Jane Goodall talked about like being amazed at things outside of the self through a couple of pathways and one is starting to make sense of what you might call the transcendent states more generally where we transcend the self and they include states like bliss and ecstasy and bliss and ecstasy which haven't been studied that effectively in science, but you can find them, for example, in spiritual journaling, psychedelic writings, is where the ego, the self just dissolves completely. And it's like, I don't know where I was. And that's bliss or ecstasy. Awe, very importantly, and I actually think this is really a fundamental part of awe, is relational. It is where you're making sense of how you are part of something large, right? I'm part of a political movement. I'm part of the people who love Iggy Pop. I'm part of people who volunteer in prisons and part of a scientific movement, that's really important to, for purpose and meaning. Uh, and in fact, it defines this important idea of meaning that it's about, I'm part of larger things that, that will live beyond my life that are more important than my self-interest. Awe brings that into focus. Um, could it not be that that kind of, oh, I'm part of something bigger, the conceptualization of it, adding a narrative to it comes after the event though? Yeah, and, and that's where that's a very plausible possibility. And I think you're right. And and that will take, I believe, really careful neuroscience where people can measure the areas of the brain very sophist in a sophisticated way that, that it's about the the ego. You can chart a person's full experience during awe, maybe psychedelics or music or what have you, and then sort of find like does that self disappear? at their level of neural representation and then reappear as you make sense of it, that's tractable and that would be an important finding and really get at, you know, this ego death puzzle uh, at yeah. the heart of awe and, and these transcendent states. Because a lot of like meditators or whatever else would say that we experience the, um, the default self going more often than we realize. Yeah. Let's, let's say when you wake up in the morning and before your mind sort of come online, perhaps you've had a bad few days and you wake up and you have that that moment of just being aware. And then suddenly oh, all the stories and the kind of, oh, blimey, I've got this and I've fallen out with this person and, and, you know, I've got to pay this bill. That sort of comes online. A lot of people suggest that we have a lot of these moments of no default self, but it's not so pronounced. We kind of overlook it. I agree. And, you know, that was one of the themes of the book, Everyday Awe. People are finding it much more regularly than you might imagine. I think you're issuing a challenge more broadly to, for example, the meditation world, right? That 
there's this big deal about, oh, if you meditate for 10 years, you lose the self, no self, etc. But in point of fact, and I think awe is a pathway to this, little moments of awe give you a freedom from the self. It, it quiets the voice. It, it makes you open your mind. And they may be happening much more commonly than we imagine. And I think that that's why we need the science, right? To uh, It may be something, you know, that, that people are experiencing 10, 12 times a day. And, and it's easy to find and, and worth looking into. And that's why I love that your book is that it, it's kind of a prescription in many ways to go out and experience awe and experience these things that we're talking about. It literally has tangible benefits in terms of our health, but also the way we treat others. Yeah, you know, this got really, I mean, my lab had been working on this for 10 years, other labs, and it got really poignant, you know, after my brother died, I entered in, I call it a state of awelessness. I was just, you know, I was so disoriented by the grief for six months, a year, 18 months. I just, all the wonders of life that I am so, you know, I was lucky enough to be raised to experience. I just didn't feel it. And, and I really felt in my body what we've learned scientifically that little moments of awe in terms of tangible benefits make you feel like you have less stress, make you feel like you have more time in the day, make older people feel less pain, make you feel less self-critical, make your immune system stronger, give you heart health, activating the vagus nerve. And then socially, and thank you for bringing that to our attention, you share more, you cooperate more, you feel like you're, you have a stronger social network, right? Hey, I got a lot of great people who love me around me, all with a couple of moments of awe. And, you know, as I started to put those together in the state I was in, I, I was like, you know, I say in the book, like, you know, there's almost nothing better for well-being than going and finding 10 minutes of awe. Um, it is robust in terms of the benefits it brings us um, and uh, is right around us. So there, there's a lot to benefit from experience of awe. And, and we'll learn more about it in terms of life expectancy and, and other kinds of, of effects. And it doesn't need to cost a thing, which is the beauty. All right, just to finish then, Dakar. Yeah. A prescription, if you could then, for all. One for your average Joe or Janet, one for society, and then also one for children, because you talk about how the phenomenon of, of children increasing becoming awe-starved because of the way society has shifted over the last few decades. So would you mind just knocking off three prescriptions there, please? Yeah, so for for... The person out there, I would say, get together with a group of people, you know, or a couple of people, uh, and and I do this with thousands of people, and tell a story of all. Um, you know, think about the last time you felt wonder and goosebumps, and you're moved to awe by encountering a vast mystery. Tell the stories with other people, and that gets powerful right away. You know, where suddenly you're talking about moral beauty or a concert. Um, and, and talk about what that brought to you in your life in terms of what was meaningful about the experience. For society, I would say uh, get outdoors, uh, you know, green spaces. And, you know, there is a huge movement in many parts of the world from India to London, UK, national parks in the United States. Go to the green spaces and, and open yourself up to awe because the data... You know, the book has all these findings that suggest like this is you can count on 
and getting outdoors you can count on. Um, and then for children, I would say, I would say we need a revolution in parenting and you're about to be a parent. And so I hope you're taking notes, you know, we need a revolution in parenting and teaching and educational settings. We're, we're building, we're going to release a course on awe for teachers, which I'm really excited about, which tens of thousands of teachers will go to. And it's very simple, which is, and Rachel Carson, who I profile in the book, this hero of environmentalism, an amazing writer, writes about teach your child to wonder, right? Uh, children need to go in search of mysteries. They don't need names and labels of things. They need to experience things. Um, they need to have sort of calm unfettered experiences of observing the world, just listening to bird song and listen, like feeling the rain on your skin. And so I feel like we need to return so much of our life with children now is scripted and we name it, we categorize things, we try to get them to do well on tests. We all, we need that, but we need to open up these moments of awe for kids of like going to places that are mysterious. Don't rely on knowledge and language to encounter experiences, right? Uh, and then um, to just to be paused, to give them time, to be open to uh, what they observe, and, and that'll get kids to awe pretty quickly. And you said unfiltered. Put your phone down when you're out and about. You've got to experience it directly. Forget the photo, directly. You know, not, we had 2,600 narratives of awe from around the world. Not a single person mentioned their smartphone. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting, like, uh, you know, I, uh, am in Amsterdam visiting colleagues right now. And yesterday I tried to get to their university through Google maps and it took me on the most efficient route, which is I ended up in the pornographic area where there are a lot of drugs. It's ugly. It's kind of, ah, it was, I was like, this is terrible. Right. But it got me there three minutes faster today. I went there for all, you know, I was like, what's the coolest road by the canals? Uh, totally. I, it took me three minutes longer, but it was all about awe. So yeah, you know, put the phone down, you know, throw it in the river if you want, you know, it doesn't get you to awe. And I think we got to remember that, that, that notion is very fundamental. And the all walk that you talk about, and it came to mind because I said, put your phone down and stop taking photos. But there's this photo that sticks in my mind from the book of a woman who'd gone on the all walk. There's a before photo that she took, selfie, and an after photo. And the first one, her face is sort of front and center in the photo, takes up most of the picture. And in the second one, it's just down in this corner and all this space is left for nature. That picture spoke a thousand words. Oh my God, you know, and if we're looking for another way to find awe, we, we developed the awe walk, which is take your usual walk. Everybody's doing walks these days, but you know, go to some place that's new, focus in on your breathing, look for small things and vast things, and suddenly you start to feel awe, right? Um, and my favorite finding, that study was done with people who are 75 years old or older, and they started to feel less physical pain on a daily basis, which is a big deal for older people. That is important. But I, I love the photo finding that you're talking about, which is we had them take selfies each week. They did a walk. And over the course of the all walk of eight weeks, the self starts to drift off to the side. And it just tells you, like, you are more open to the rest of the world, you know, what's around you. Uh, and uh, so thanks for reminding us of that finding. And that's what awe does. It 
it gets you away from yourself, outside of yourself, and suddenly there are all these wonders to attend to that all brings us. Were you surprised with those photos and that phenomenon of people sort of yeah. taking up the bottom right-hand corner or the bottom left-hand corner and allowing so much more in? That visual representation. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, we got the smile finding, which I think people smile a little bit more during awe, you know, so it's more pleasurable. But the position of the face was a young researcher in our lab who, who had the wherewithal to say, I can calculate geometrically, are you in the center of the photo or off to the side? And awe pushed people your sense of self off to the side. Thank goodness. <laughs> okay, right, last thing. You talk about awe being vast, mysterious, and undefinable. And obviously, awe is, is undefinable because it is non-conceptual. I don't know if you what you think of that. Yeah, yeah, I think this is one of the animating principles of the experience of awe, which is that it, it first of all, as you nicely put, Simon, and what a terrific observation, it doesn't come to us um, in a little propositional statement, like, oh, I'm feeling awe about this, the age of the tree. It comes at us like a wave of images and, and loose associations and metaphors and memories from the past. So it is non-conceptual in that sense. And then what fascinates me about awe is, like you said, at its heart, even when we do our best efforts with science and poetry and painting and music and like to understand it, it's still mysterious. The experience is defined by mystery. And what that mystery at the heart of the experience does is it just gets us to wonder about things. It gets us to inquire. It gets us to search for things, right? It gets us to uh, figure it out. So unlike a lot of emotions, awe has built into it mystery, which animates the further search for its meaning. And we'll never figure it out. Right. And uh, but we'll get we'll get closer. And I think as we get closer, we'll figure out. I think what Einstein said is like, this is the most human of emotions is is awe and mystery. It just brings us so much meaning and we always have to try to figure it out. Yeah. And I think there is such beauty in not being able to figure it out. Yeah. And when I end the book, you know, part of the book's about figuring out what my my brother died and part of it is figuring out awe. And I end and just like, it's still a mystery, you know, but it's a beautiful mystery, both of them, this emotion and what life is when we lose a person we love. Uh, and they have animated um, a lot of joy and a lot of uh, discovery and still do. And that's the point of all. Yeah. Well, listen, Daka, it's a wonderful book. I'm sure you're, it's profound, but it's also prescriptive, which I like. I like the idea that it, it gives people such tangible ways to go and experience something that is so important for human experience, you know, and it's so easily overlooked. So just huge congratulations on the book. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Like I said, you know, I, I've scribbled your name down and then here you are. It's, it's awesome. I get off just from that. And it's just been a real pleasure as I knew it would be. So just thank you so much indeed. Well, for me too, Simon, and thank you for all of your very original and insightful questions and observations. They're really, uh, they get right to the heart of the book. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons Podcast. I would be delighted to hear your thoughts, your ideas, your guest suggestions, your questions. Just get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. And if you could share this episode with someone you know or on social media, I would be very grateful as it does really help people to find this podcast. 
That's it for now. I will be back with a bite-sized episode this Friday and another full-length episode next week. Until then, goodbye. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, You won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.